0: in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. Revelation 18, verse 1. There's a lot here, just like there was in 17. I thought I was going to come to another chapter again where I took off more than I could chew and we were going to have to break it up, but I think we can get through chapter 18 today. We're going to try This is God's word, Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she has mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour... Your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour. "'Wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. "'The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, "'and all your delicacies and splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. "'The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off "'in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud.' Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all those who trade, whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning, What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her, in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints... And all who have been slain on earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our eyes now, that we may see wonderful things in it. Help us, give us wisdom to understand. Give us more than understanding, Lord, of your word. Uh, Give us depth of love for you because of what you have spoken to us. Help us not to just know the content but to know you who are the word incarnate to know you and to love you would you do this work in us today we pray in Jesus name amen please be seated so revelation 18 continues this portrayal of the destruction of babylon the great that we began to see in chapter 18 or 17 rather and the final judgment and within this description there are two messages to the people of god the first is that message to come out to live separately in verses 4 and 5, an exhortation not to participate in the sins of Babylon that we would share in her plagues or her judgments. The second message is to those believers who have died in the Lord, who seem to be witnessing the judgment from heaven, that they should rejoice in this act of justice, in this work of judgment. You saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Both of these messages are applicable to us today. The first, a warning not to be seduced by the world system. We've talked about what Babylon is for the past several weeks, this world system, a world view. It's an understanding of how the world functions. We see the evidence of it. Sometimes it's hard to maybe nail down exactly what it is, but we see the evidence. We know what it is. We have understanding of that. Uh, I mentioned one week the idea of, of, of the allurement. It's not just to defile men. I mean, sexual immorality, the, the wealth that's mentioned here, those are parts of it, but it's not in any way limited to that. We see it in the heart of rebellion. We see it in the heart of uh, uh, a pride that's evidenced in, in, in our lives, in our world, around us. We talked one week about the idea of being cool. And again, that concept may be hard for us to really appreciate, but it's, it's simply the desire that we have to be envied by others, to be worshipped by others, and how seductive that is when that allures us. Paul wrote in Romans twelve two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, your mind that you would be able to test and discern what is the will of God, his good and acceptable and perfect will. This is, in a sense, the, the message that John is relaying from this first angel that they would come out and not be a part of Babylon. The second message is a message of hope. It is a message to believers, not just those who have died in the Lord, but even to us, that as God's justice comes, we should rejoice in it because they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets so they will be judged in like manner. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. The messages, or the messengers, rather, of these messages that we see here are these two angels, and then we have a voice from heaven. The angels are kind of the the bookends, and then we have the voice from heaven that kind of gives the bulk of the message uh, in the middle of it. The angels provide some more information about what Babylon is like and who Babylon is. They also provide some of the justification. The second angel gives us an object lesson, a great millstone being thrown down, if you've ever seen the ancient millstones uh, from those societies that at this time would have you know been carried around, this, this is not anything that would have been pushed by a human. We're talking a big you know big big rock, and uh, the picture that's painted really is that you know you throw this thing in the sea and you're never going to get it up again. It's gone forever. That's the picture of Babylon that's being painted. The voice from heaven, uh, it also kind of has two bookends. The bookends of these messages, it begins with the first message to be set apart, and it ends with the, the second message of rejoicing in God's justice. And then in between those two messages is further explanation of the judgment itself. The picture that is painted for us of Babylon here in chapter 18 is this world system that glories in itself. Pride is really kind of the driving force behind Babylon the Great. It is a system that rejects God, a system that seeks pleasure and self, and a system that is aloof to the consequences of sin. It's a picture of our own day, a picture of the world in which we live, a picture of the world that does what is right in its own eyes, that Sees like this, you know, YOLO, you only live once, right? This is it. This is all you get. Do all that you can. Get all that you can get. That's battle on the great. That's the worldview that is being portrayed here. A world of material wealth where all that glitters becomes the means and the end to how people live. Get all that you can now. Our culture has become one that longs for luxury above love. We seek pleasure above purpose. We pursue consumerism more than courage. and At the end, we just seem to want more and more and more over any sense of wholeness or health. And yet here it is a world system that faces the end that is portrayed in this passage. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. So beginning in verse 1, we're introduced to this first angel here, not by a name, but by a description, one having great authority. The earth was made bright with his glory. He spoke with a mighty voice. Because of this description, some have speculated that this is a picture of Christ. I don't think there's a need, though, to go to that. John doesn't have any problem speaking of Christ as Christ in the book of Revelation, so I don't think there's any need to assume uh, that this angel is being, or that Christ is being masked here or represented as an angel. The authority, the glory that's attributed to him, really, we've seen this happen again and again with angels, where uh, it, it almost is like signs and wonders before the scriptures were written, they were sent to validate the messenger. And so this glory, this authority, this mighty voice is given or shown to reflect who is who the, who the messenger represents, that he is coming from God himself. And he declares, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Right away, we notice that the announcement is in the past tense. And yet this is speaking of something that is to happen in the future. We know the great city of Babylon had been in the dust for a long time at this point, about 600 years when John wrote this. When Cyrus came in and destroyed the ancient city of Babylon... It's not talking about that, we know that. This is instead speaking of this worldly system, the worldview that has been present in the world, we could say since the garden, but certainly since the ancient Babylon, that tower of Babel that sought to be like God in their pride building that tower. The past tense is used here so that we might understand the surety of the judgment that is to come. It's as good as done It's what this is communicating here. The prophet Jeremiah asks the question, Why have the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? Habakkuk asked, Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted, when we witness the same types of things in our own world, when we have the same kinds of questions as the prophets have here, this sure message of God's coming judgment is here a comfort to our hearts. The picture that is painted further of Babylon is a a desolate one, a place where demons live, a place where animals like vultures and hyenas and jackals dwell, and the reason for the destruction. Why is all this happening, given in verse 3? It's this allurement into immorality. Now, the scope of this, as we've talked a number of times, sexual immorality is used throughout the Scriptures to refer to more than simply sexual immorality. It's a symbol here. It certainly includes that. Uh, The reason why we would understand it to be more is the Old Testament. We continue to go back to the Old Testament to understand Revelation, and we see throughout the Old Testament... This sexual immorality is used to describe all kinds of idolatrous sins. It is that image of unfaithfulness, that we as the people of God are unfaithful to uh, him who has called us. So as humans, all of us, as we sin against God, we are unfaithful to our creator. That's the image that's being given here. We've seen this in... Revelation, as well as we've studied this Babylonian system, to this this includes so much more than just the sexual immorality, so much more than the excessive wealth, and we know in our own day, as we see the world around us, that these that's more than simply the problem of sexual immorality or abundant wealth. We see pride, we see envy, we see selfishness and rebellion, and all of these things as we read through the book of or this chapter of Revelation, all of these things, are, they come out in this more uh, kind of literary way. After this is the voice from heaven in verse 4, and it begins with this call to believers not to fall into the traps of Babylon. It's a call to be set apart. We might think here of the words of Jesus. He said to his followers, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. And we take that and we take passages that we read in the high priestly prayer of Jesus and we come up with phrases like, be in the world but not of the world. And I think that's a helpful kind of concept to consider that we are are in the world. We recognize that we're in the world but we're not called to be of the world. The danger, however, as we navigate life is, if you imagine yourself going down a road, ditches on either side, you don't want to end up in the ditch. I get this from my dad, and I probably talk about ditches more than anybody because of him. And Because he, he used this as an illustration all the time, but also when we were driving, that was a big thing. Don't end up in the ditch. I did end up in the ditch once. He had to come and help me out. What are the two ditches? Well, I don't think there's just two. But there are two that we could consider here this morning. One, uh, if we think in, in terms of legalism and antinomianism, this idea, legalism, we understand what that is, kind of the self-righteous pride that we can creep into. Antinomianism or, or licentiousness, it's, it's this idea that, you know, we're saved, we can just do whatever we want, it doesn't matter how we live, you know, it's all grace. And we kind of swerve into, those are the two, the two ditches that we could go into. We'll say self-righteous pride or, in the case of antinomianism, kind of indifferent conformity, that we just kind of give up. We don't really care how we live. We just do what we want. Self-righteous pride can be this tendency when we think that separation is the ultimate holiness. The monks did this in the medieval times, and we recognize that this probably isn't what is reflected in the scriptures of how we are to live. However, there are times where that life really does appeal to me. (laughs) Let's just all go off and form a little commune and just get out of this mess. I get the appeal. That's not how we're called to live. There are many ways that we are to be separate from the world. There's no doubt about that. But we have to guard our hearts against this self-righteousness that can so easily come up if we consider the ways that we've separated as the only way that a Christian can live. Now, certainly, we're not talking about things that we're commanded not to do. We understand that. That's not so much the issue of separation. We're talking here more more so the wisdom that's required to navigate. I mean, just in all of our lifetimes, probably in this room, or at least those who are listening, in our lifetimes, there have been things that were once taboo, that now are no big deal. You may have grown up in a place where there was no dancing. Or no movies, or no drinking, or no smoking. Or well, smoking's now out. But you know, there's things in our culture. There's things in the church, you know, that are that are that that were taboo and now aren't, and now other things that weren't taboo and now are. But culture is fickle in this regard. We need wisdom. So what do we do? We have to guard our hearts. How do we care to make sure that this doesn't become an issue of pride? If we begin to boast in our separation, we need to be on guard. If that becomes, that we have to tell people how we've separated, that that becomes a boasting of our, we know our hearts. You know, other people may not know our hearts. We know what motivates us. Another indicator is if we begin to judge others for not doing what we're doing, that could be another another indicator that there's some, some pride there. Again, we need wisdom here, and we need grace to understand and remember the words of Jesus. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. There may be things in your life that you need to say no to. There may be things in your life that you need to say no to, and the person next to you doesn't. I, you know, I've talked with many of you. I may have mentioned it to a sermon of, of getting off Facebook a year ago. I did that because I thought that's what I needed to do. And then I was surprised how when it would come up in conversation, I would feel this little twinge of, yeah, I got a Facebook. It's a little bit of pride. I'm like, where did this come from? I didn't do this to impress people. I, thought it was, I just thought I needed to do this for me, like it wasn't healthy for me. I'm telling you this stuff will creep up and surprise you and shock you even at times where this self-righteous pride is in all of us. We talk about the little legalist in all of us. That's him, right? That self-righteous pride that pops up. The other side when we talk about indifferent conformity. This can come in a number of ways for Christians. I think one of the ways this can happen is when we just we stop caring, you know, we just kind of check out. Just want to live our lives. Don't really want to be bothered. Holiness, you know, it's almost the mindset that we have. Fire insurance, you know, I'm saved. God's got me. I'm not worried about how I live. It's it's that kind of mindset. Uh, maybe we just don't want to make waves. Maybe we want people to like us. We don't want our neighbors to think that we're weird or our coworkers. We've talked about how Babylon is that luring effect of us wanting to be cool. We want people to envy us. And I've talked about the little legalist that we all have inside, and I think most of us understand what that is. Now I'm thinking we also have a little hipster in all, inside of all of us. And, and a hipster, I and mean, it's almost a dated term now, but it, it was a hipster was just someone who, who wasn't just cool, but it was almost a caricature of cool. It was someone who was trying a little too hard to be cool. It wasn't just that they had the soul patch, It wasn't just that they had the soul patch and the dark-rimmed glasses. It wasn't just that they had those in the beanie, but they had the skinny jeans and the boots and the scarf. And when you saw them, you just thought, "You're, you're trying too hard. But there is that in all of us, that we want so desperately for people to admire us, to envy us, to worship us. We wouldn't say that. None of us would say we want other people to worship us. But I think if we check our hearts... There are times where we're just in conversation. Maybe it's talking about getting off Facebook, and you, you feel it. You feel that twinge. You want that person to, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a little, he, he's pretty holy. You know, he's, he's got it figured out. That's what I'm talking about. We've got to guard our hearts. Another way that this can happen, and this is happening, uh, we see it happen throughout church history, but we see it happening in our own day, it's coming from the same motivation of wanting to be liked, but instead of an indifference to holy living, it comes from this desire to kind of transform the culture. And I see a lot of people dragged into this. I think the intention is good. Positive influence on the culture is a good thing. When we have opportunities to positively influence the culture, we shouldn't run from those. That's great. But I think it can be naive. We think, if we think, that we're strong enough, smart enough, and winsome enough to engage the world so as to win some out of the world, and there may be some of us who are, for many of us this becomes dangerous. Just because, and I won't name names here, but there are certain preachers and pastors who are really effective in certain contexts. Not all of us are called to be that. There are some people who, given a stage, can speak well and articulate the faith and maybe speak to a certain audience. Not all of us can be that. Again, great wisdom is required here. As good as such intentions are, and Paul did say, I've become all things to all people to win some. I'm going to talk about that more in a minute. I find that many Christians have tried this approach only to find themselves wooed by the world and like a frog in the kettle they end up becoming like the world. And as they become like the world, their their faith simply becomes lip service. Separation, here's my point, folks. Separation from the world is not simplistic or easy. It can be. It can be simplistic. I mean, if someone calls you to lie, don't lie. I mean, you know, Ten Commandments, that's where it's simplistic. But there are so many nuances and avenues and challenges that are before us that we have to wrestle with. And there may be a time in your life where you say no to one thing that later you feel the freedom to say yes to or vice versa. But this requires great wisdom and grace and we shouldn't ever act as if it's just a formula. I think those who do almost always end up in one ditch or the other, the legalism or the antinomianism, the little legalist or the little hipster. And the common denominator for all of us, the common denominator is pride. That's what takes us into either ditch. It's when that pride wells up inside of our hearts. People pride themselves in the many excellent ways that they are not like the world. Others pride themselves in the many ways they are reaching the world. When pride comes in, either path can lead to a slipping away from the truth of God's word and a loss of the gospel itself. And again, this can happen, we can see it happen in denominations, we can see it happen in churches, but where we really need to be concerned about, mostly, is our own hearts. Lord, don't let this happen in my heart. Don't let me fall into the path of self-righteous pride, and don't let me get wooed by the world and become like it. We need wisdom to do this. The common theme that we have seen in the book of Revelation to believers, is that we are called to overcome by faith in the Lamb who has overcome. Over and over to the seven churches, to the one who conquers, are the promises given. That is the message. We are to live as overcomers. We are li- to live as conquerors. This means that as long as we are living in this world, our aim is not complete separation. Think monks, okay, communes nor complete conformity with the world, many of our mainline churches today, but to live as overcomers, right where you're planted. Go to work, go to school, live as neighbors, shop in stores, do your business as people who are in the world but not of the world, as overcomers. Tell the truth. Be kind. Give of yourself. Live courageously and not in fear. Stand up against injustice. Give to those in need. Make peace. Don't stir up strife. Refuse gossip. Speak words that drip of grace. Guard your hearts against lust and envy. And guard your eyes from looking at things that foster such. Be a tender warrior against the arrows of Satan as we see evil in this world. Walk in faith in Jesus. Never give up hope in Jesus and live out the love that Jesus has poured out on us. We live this way for the glory of the one who has saved us, but it is also to our benefit as well. Look in verse 4 Lest you share in her plagues. Because when we do sin, we reap the consequences of sin. And the warning is here don't participate. There's protection in it. The voice from heaven continues to describe the sins of Babylon. They are heaped as high as heaven. I think this is almost certainly an allusion to the Tower of Babel. That image, that's the picture that we should have in mind here. And as a result, her payment for her sins is coming due. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Now most argue here that this is... Her getting what she deserves. The wages, the consequences, the outworkings of her acts in, in persecuting God's people and slaying uh, the saints and the prophets. The word translated double could be better understood as duplicate. And it's that idea of an eye for an eye, not a double portion. However, I'm not fully convinced as I read through it. I did look it up. The word is understood Duplicate but I'm still not sure that this isn't a double portion. Either way, the punishment will at least fit the crime, if not be an excessive judgment because of what she has done. In verse 7, we see the picture painted of one who's full of pride. She's gloried herself, saying, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. She revels in her luxury, and this has given her a false sense of comfort and security. That's the trap. It's the trap that so many fall into. They think that right now, they look at their, their accounts, they look at the, you know, their, their, their statements, and they have this false sense of security, not understanding that not just in a day, but in an hour, it can all be wiped away. That's what sin does. It deceives us. It causes us to think everything is squared away and okay. As Christians, we ought not think so. Because of this confidence, because of this pride that she exhibits, God is going to take it away. In a single day, we read in verse 8, it's so quick, it happens all at once. This is the picture of the final judgment. In the next section, we see the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, the merchants of the wares, and the shipmasters and sailors. This incorporates the whole economic system. That's what's being painted here. All who have benefited from Babylon, and the point is to paint this picture of this system that finds its identity in itself. It it determines its own profit, its own benefit. They love the system for what it can do for them, how they can profit. And as judgment comes upon them, they stand far away, and they watch it all burn. There's no effort to rescue it. There's no effort to save it. They recognize that this is the end. And the picture of a system turning in on itself, self-imploding, just as we read in chapter 17. The kings, the rulers, are the ones who are blamed with complicity. They are those who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, verse 9. And the three categories of merchants, they mourn the loss of their business and their profits. They all go down the tubes. They grieve, weeping and mourning aloud, crying out, throwing dust on their heads. And now, by verses 17 19, I think there's a reference to it in verse 12 as well, the judgment is being described as in a single hour. So it seems to be speeding up now. It was a single day, now it's a single hour. This is happening more more quickly than they even imagined. And then in the last statement, they cry out to heaven, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. They are not crying out. This is the voice from heaven, the command. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given her judgment for you against her. Paul Gardner writes, As God's people, we are to rejoice over Babylon's destruction, not because of some perverted desire to see the people suffering, but because the Lord is carrying out His promises. Here is God fulfilling the promise and answering the prayers of those who have cried out for centuries, How long, O Lord? The people who suffered under Babylon's oppression will now celebrate the justice that she receives. And in the final scene, verse 21, the second angel gives this object lesson, taking this millstone, throwing it into the sea. And the lesson is that Babylon will be sunk, never to return, She will be found no more. That phrase, no more, is there six times in those four verses. This is emphatic. As if it hadn't been clear from the previous scene of the destruction of the economy, now the angel tells us that even the culture is shattered. It is demolished. This is the day the music died. The music comes to an end. The craftsmen, the artists, the lights go out. Even celebrations and parties like weddings are no more. All this wealth has been laid To waste. And the end of the scene is accented with the reason for her judgment in verse 24. In her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. Again, Paul Gardner writes, How ironic that the ones whose blood is now found in her streets are among those who, as God's saints, rejoice from their place in heaven at her demise. How ironic that just as Babylon had withdrawn food and trading rights from God's people and her implacable opposition and persecution of them, so now all food provision and all trade ceases in the city. How ironic that she who gathered the world together to destroy God's people is watched by those people as God destroys her. Ironic may be an understatement here. The system that provided for in whose identity they found themselves, everything that people counted on for purpose and wealth and happiness, it dissolves in judgment, just like that. We see this as we look back in history. Empires that said they were going to exist for millennia, (laughs) said that they were going to take over the world, said that they would never come to an end, and they are but a note in the history books. And we can also look in our own day And what appears to be the imploding effects of an ever-weakening structure in our own nation. And we see the judgment of God. So what are we to do? Let me give you two things to consider here as we close. First of all, our greatest problem, all of us, our greatest problem is our sin. If you have not come face-to-face with the reality of your own sin... That is really all that you need to be thinking about at this point as you consider the coming judgment of God. Your sin is a problem that you cannot solve. You need a Savior. And Jesus is the Savior of sinners, the one who came to take away our sins, to deal with them once and for all. Put your trust and your hope in Him, that your sins would be forgiven, that you do not have to fear the coming judgment. There is absolutely no reason to wait. That's the message for you today. Secondly, for you who are trusting in Christ, heed these two exhortations that we see in Revelation 18. The latter one is to rejoice in the judgment of God. This is going to be hard sometimes to think about, but remember the words I read from Paul Gardner. It's not, this, it's not a sick or perverted means of wanting to see people suffer, but rather to see the promises of God fulfilled, to see true justice come on those who have shed the blood of the prophets and the saints. The other exhortation that we should heed is the call to come out of the world and to not be a part of her. Don't allow the little Pharisee inside to twist this into some kind of works righteousness whereby you are judging others by your own life choices. Don't allow the little hipster inside to twist this into some kind of works righteousness whereby you are conforming to the world and its standards in a vain effort to win hardened hearts. I mentioned the passage from Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. However, the idea that Paul there is saying that he adopted the world's standards to become all things to all people is not what he's communicating there. Paul knew better than probably all of us that he wasn't going to save anyone, that he wasn't going to soften the hardened heart of anyone. We can't even soften our own hard hearts. It is only the work of God that can do this. And so what he is speaking to is not adopting the world's standards, but living in such a way that you connect with people and you identify with people while maintaining a holy life and calling them to faith. Paul wrote in the second letter to Corinth, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. While we can be all things to all people, this does not include setting aside the godly standards for worldly ones. We have to be on guard. So what does this look like for us? How are we to live our lives as we go from here? Quite simply, go out and live to the glory of God. Go live your lives to the glory of God. Everything you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. If you are a salesman, a student, a nurse, a business owner, a homemaker, a teacher, a tradesman, if you're retired or if you're on the hunt for a job, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That's 1 Thessalonians 4:11. That's a whole another sermon right there. I feel like that's the antithesis right now of modern Christianity that's more interested in branding and identity than it is to live a quiet life and to mind your own business. There's something I can take home and apply. Do everything by faith and with thanksgiving. Repent when you blow it. Ask for forgiveness. Make restitution. Be a peacemaker. Resist the devil. Fight against his schemes beyond the offensive in the spiritual battle with the tools that he's given us to fight the spiritual war. Live out the fruit of the Spirit. Build up one another. Encourage one another. Resist the little legalist inside and resist the little hipster inside. Live justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly. And above all, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor. If you are in Christ, you are a child of the King, clothed with His righteousness and secure in His hand. Put no confidence in the flesh, but have full confidence in Christ. Boast in Christ. Boast in Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that it doesn't return void and we pray now that you would take it and do that work in our hearts. Kill, kill the sin that's there. Convict us of the sin as it creeps up, as we go from here, as we live our lives. Lord, help us live to your glory. When we blow it, help us to repent. But help us to live with purpose. Say no to the things that we need to see and say no to. Saying yes to the things that we need to say yes to. Give us the wisdom to know the difference between. And Lord, in the midst of all of it, would you fill us with grace so that whether we're doing it right or whether we do it wrong, we are never looking to ourselves as our standard or as our salvation. But we are constantly looking to Christ, who is our Savior, our Redeemer, and our friend. And we're pointing others to Him to see His glory and His beauty that they would desire all that He has to offer. Would you help us, Lord, do these things to live lives well and to your glory, we pray? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.